Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Alonement Podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, and this show is all about your longest and most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. It doesn't matter if you're single, married, or somewhere in between. Alonement means valuing your time alone, regardless of your romantic status. Each week, I ask a new guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. My guest this week is writer and magazine editor Alexandra Shulman. I think it's one of the great talents in life to is to be happy on your own. I think it's people who are content on their own who also can relate to other people. I mean, you know, they are, yeah, that is a great talent because, you know, at the end of the day, we are on our own, really, and it's very important to be able to be on your own. Alexandra Shulman is best known for being the former editor-in-chief of British Vogue, where she was at the helm for 25 years, the longest-serving editor in the publication's history. This is also a rather special interview for me because Alexandra is my former boss. I began my journalistic career as an intern at British Vogue six years ago. As well as a magazine editor, Alexandra is a novelist and non-fiction author. Her most recent book, a memoir titled Clothes and Other Things That Matter, is a fascinating insight into Alexandra's career at Vogue and beyond. Alexandra, hi. Hi. Firstly, can I just say how honoured I am to have you on the podcast? I will always remember the first time we met because I was an intern at British Vogue for six months. And I remember, I think it was, you know, my first couple of weeks in, you came over and introduced yourself and you asked me which version of the magazine cover I preferred because there were two different versions. And yeah, I will always remember that as a first meeting. I think it really blew all sort of Devil Wears Prada connotations out of the window. Oh, that's so nice you remember that. I did that quite often asking people because, you know, you have your own personal view and, and normally I did what I what I wanted, you know, when it was a choice. But it's quite good to test out particularly people who were like interns who were coming into the office who weren't part of the culture who didn't have any kind of um, 
allegiances to anyone so that you know their opinion was completely sort of fair in a way so I'm pleased pleased you liked it (laughs) I did it was just very welcoming I can't even imagine what it would be like being the final word with that kind of thing did that take quite a few years to develop that sense of what would work no I I think I've always been very opinionated (laughs) even as a child I think you know the one thing I've always thought that as an editor, the important thing was to be able to make a decision that people really uh, like to be told one thing or the other and not to kind of dither about it. So, um, but opinions, I don't know. I just, I've always had opinions. Okay, so clearly independent thinking has never been a problem for you. How about spending time physically alone? How, what's your relationship with that been like over the years? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, I didn't spend much time on my own, obviously, as a child. You know, we lived in a flat with, there were three kids and my parents and there was no, <laughs> sort of never any anywhere to be on your own. Um, and so I guess my first experience really of being on my own was going to university and, you know, being in you know your university room on your own. And I liked that, but I sort of, I don't think I'm somebody who loves being on my own. I I like it selectively. I li- I like to be alone to do what I want to do and knowing that there's going to be somebody else uh coming back or that I'm going to see afterwards. I mean, I think that's a really the nicest thing is to be able to kind of do your own thing, have your own life, but then to be able to share it in some way with someone at some point. So you were at the helm of British Vogue for 25 years. How did you cope with the showbiz element of that? So the big parties and meeting celebrities. Was that a part of the job that you enjoyed doing? No, I'm very, very bad with famous people. I'm completely silenced by um, anybody famous, always have been. And I remember actually one day I was flying to New York uh, and... Uh, I was lucky enough that I was flying first class and opposite me, um, Benedict Cumberbatch got on the plane and the seat opposite. And, you know, I thought, oh, God, nobody wants to be, you know, noticed or recognized or whatever. Um, So, you know, I wasn't saying anything. And then he very sweetly offered me a mint uh, when we were taking off. So, you know, I said, thank you. That's really, really nice. And then he kind of went to sleep for the journey and I'm scared of flying. So I didn't sleep at all. You know, I was awake for eight hours or whatever. And then just before we landed in New York, he woke up and, um, I think he must've said something or something. And I just couldn't think what to say to him. I remember, you know, I said something like, Oh, is that your breakfast you're ordering or something really kind of stupid? And I just completely did not know what to say. And then when I got uh, got back to the office and I was telling people the story, they were just like, we cannot believe you're so lame, you know, that that was all you could say to Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> <laughs> so starstruck by Benedict Cumberbatch. And how long had you been editor of British Vogue at that point? Oh, about 23 years. <laughs> So it sort of never goes. No. And how about the social element of all that? So I remember there were some fabulous Vogue parties. Did you consciously try and dip out of the limelight with those? Oh, no, I love giving parties. That was, you know, that was great. And I mean, I think the thing about famous people is that everybody likes, everybody else likes to have them around. It makes everybody feel 
that they're somewhere special to be in the company of people who are famous. So, um, you know, for both parties, that was very, very important uh, because it kind of added to the to the fun of it. But for me personally, you know, I didn't really feel anything about it. So your new book, Clothes and Other Things That Matter, it talks about how your own wardrobe has played a role in your life and what different items of clothing have meant to you over the years. We're recording during the coronavirus lockdown when many of us aren't really leaving our houses. What role do you think clothes play at the moment? I think what's been really interesting uh, during this period as we are, I mean, we're all alone right now. I mean, not some people... You know, people like me luckily live with other people, but there are many people who are who are on their own. And I think it's been very interesting to see how people feel about um, feel about their clothes in this situation when when really either either nobody else is seeing them or just the people who know them really well are seeing them and the people to whom it matters to kind of get dressed in the morning and to think about what you're wearing and that sort of part of your um, routine, your kind of strategy uh, makes you feel good. Whereas other people feel that this is a time when they can just kind of just not bother and they want to sign off on the whole kind of clothes thing. And I mean, I don't think there's any right or wrong about it, but I think it is interesting seeing how different people have reacted. Yeah, I mean, that really resonates because I've been isolating alone. How long, how long have you been on your own? Um, I think about 35 days or something. I mean, I don't have a wall chart, but... Oh, okay. Yeah, quite a while. I've really surprised myself, though, because I expected to really not care about what I was wearing during this time. But, you know, psychologically, it does affect me and it does make me feel a certain way. Um, if, you know, if, if I'm in my pajamas compared to if I'm properly dressed. And yeah, I think it's really interesting that clothing affects your sort of sense of identity that much. Well, well, clothes are very, um, you know, they touch you. You wear your clothes. They're on your body. They're on your skin. They're, they're, they're completely part of you. And I think that's one of the reasons why they have such kind of potency. Um, that, you know, they're not really an a, a adjunct. Um, and I think they're not important to everybody uh, or they not everybody thinks they're important. I think even if even the fact that somebody doesn't think they're important actually tells you something about them. I think you can read a lot about people through their clothes. But days like this, um, times like this, uh, you know, it's very interesting about... I guess what people do to to make themselves feel safe or to make themselves feel um, happy or to make themselves feel that times aren't that strange. How about for you in your earlier career when you first became editor of British Vogue, did you feel like you had to dress a certain way? Was there a certain amount of, you know, I don't think anyone feels ever ready to become the editor of Vogue, but was there a certain amount of faking it to make it in the way that you dressed? Uh, no, not really. Clothes didn't. I think when I became editor of Vogue, I I was quite aware of the fact that the clothes that I 
owned and the way I dressed wasn't probably the way that most people who would edit Vogue would. Um, because I came from a different kind of, you know, I'd been a general features journalist and previous to editing Vogue, I'd edited GQ. So that was a men's magazine. And before that, I was a more like an arts and general journalist. Um, and so sort of, sort of fashion per se and kind of trends and things like that weren't um, wasn't that I was unaware of them or and it certainly wasn't that I was uninterested in them but I was my wardrobe wasn't dictated in any way by them and I think I was quite keen to try and hold on to that uh, the way I dressed as part of myself rather than to be to try and become something that I thought was part of the job I thought it was very important because as you say it's an amazing job and I never thought I would become editor of Vogue, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't try to be something that I didn't feel was naturally me. So, and my clothes, I think, were were a part of that. I mean, obviously, there were times when, you know, I was I was lucky enough to have wonderful clothes and access to great clothes, and of course, I became very very aware of what was a you know what was fashionable, what was trendy, who was the most interesting designer and things like that but I think I was always maybe just like slightly distance one step removed from it actually personally. How has your distinctive dress sense changed since you left Vogue? I since I left going being in an office um, I don't think my style has changed very much because because that was the whole thing is I you know I kept my own thing but obviously I feel a bit more playful about my clothes. I think I'm more prepared to take a risk with things because it's just easier to do it when you're not walking into an office of 40 beautifully dressed people and you're not um, wandering around being a kind of exemplar of an idea like Vogue. You know, it's it's kind of easier to go out there and wear something that people are going to think, mm, not sure that works, Do- doesn't matter now yeah I didn't I didn't have a uniform but I think I'm probably more prepared to try things out I'll probably I don't know there's a freedom it's a freedom let's put it that way okay and while you were editing Vogue I don't know how you found the time but you also wrote two different novels how did you find the experience of writing a novel which you know in contrast to editing a magazine is is a very solitary experience um well I because I was editing Vogue when I wrote the novels um I had limited amount of time that I could write and I'm anyway somebody that can't write I mean I'm not somebody who'll sit down all day and try and write I'm I can only work in the morning um so I kind of allocated time and I just took that view which was that you can't wait for inspiration you can't wait to feel like writing you have to sit down at the time you say you're going to sit down. And if you get three words done, you get three words done. If you get 500 words done, you get 500 words done. They may be rubbish words, but you can redo them the next day. The important thing is to sit down and do it. So I used to do that in the mornings, um, got up quite early. How early? I mean, that must have been quite early in the morning before work. Sometimes about five o'clock, six would be more likely um, to write. So just get up, go downstairs, make a big pot of coffee, 
and sort of that would be like six-ish. So I'd write till about half past seven and then re-engage with everyone else getting up. By the time I started writing uh, books, my son was kind of, you know, able to get himself up and going and everything. So I'd, I'd probably do like maybe an hour or so in the morning before going to work. But it's lovely. I love that um, early morning when you are on your own and there's nobody else around. And that's, I think, a really lovely time of the day. And then I used to take Friday lunch hour um, and go to a library and work. It was like the end of the day. I, I couldn't do it every day because I was immersed in vogue. But I thought Friday, end of the week, I can take my lunch hour. And I went to the London Library, where I'm now a vice president, and I go and sit there for a couple of hours, actually, and write. And then I wrote every weekend. So, but but not kind of, you know, I don't sit there. Like, I know many people who will write, and they just sit there, and it was like blanket stitch. I'd write stuff and then rewrite it the next day and rewrite it the next day, you know, just getting a little bit further on. You know, I think it's really interesting to hear your process because I think a lot of people will say you know they they want to write a book but they can't because they have a full-time job and if they were to write a book they'd want to have a big chunk of time to devote themselves to their art but I guess what you're saying is that for you that wouldn't have worked that you didn't want to just focus solely on writing a novel that you know you liked balancing the two and that sort of helped you along yeah well I would have found it very hard to be people kept saying oh are you gonna you know why don't you go off for a week on your own and have a bash you know at the book or whatever and it was like the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to isolate myself somewhere and have all day every day and all night when I could be writing it it, it absolutely hated that idea um but you know having said which um you know I'm not Proust um I'm not Anne Tyler you know I didn't sort of I haven't written brilliant novels and it may be that if you're going to write something really brilliant, maybe you have to be somebody that can allow themselves to be more in that um, cocoon. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I don't know. The thing about novel, I mean, particularly um, second novel, The Parrots, uh, I really enjoyed being with the people that I had created and, you know, I was really interested to see what happened to them. And that's very exciting about fiction writing, I think, that, you know, sometimes people turn into things that you didn't expect or things happen that, that you never thought were going to happen. And you do need a bit of space to for that to happen, I think. But, yeah, I mean, one one time that I did actually decide I was going to go and I was trying to finish the parrots, and I, I had a few days' holidays, so I went to Spain, um, to the south of Spain, to a beautiful place, and um, I was going to be there for kind of a week on my own. And um, I remember I got, I got the train from Barcelona to Madrid, and then another train I was going to take, and then I left the laptop on the train in Madrid with my novel on it that was not backed up and that was like one of the worst moments I've ever had in my life I mean I did literally I called such pandemonium in uh in Madrid 
central train station that I got somebody to kind of open the gates and let me run onto the train and I found it because luckily it was sort of, you know, yeah, but it was like, you know, worst half hour of my life because it wasn't backed up. And Oh, my God. I mean, I can only imagine. I'm sure that put you off. Yeah, yeah, it did. It took me days to recover. <laughs> so what does your writing process look like now? I imagine you have a lot more time to focus. Well, I do a, a, a column for the Mail on Sunday. And um, so that sort of, I get up. I have a I have a quite a routine about that. I I do it on two days and you know I have specific times that I I'm quite rigid about that. Um and that's very nice for me because it's like a a kind of pillar to my week when I know exactly what I'm going to be doing and uh, and I sit in this room where I'm sitting now which is my office um at my desk here. Um and write and then uh, any other uh with the book um yeah basically sat <laughs> sat here and wrote it too sometimes I, I sit downstairs at the kitchen table and write but that's only if there's no one else in the house I quite like being in in this room it's like a kind of it's a workspace so I'm not tempted to to, to do something else so not only did you write multiple novels during your time at Vogue, you also became a mother to your son, Samuel Spike, with your now ex-husband, Paul Spike. You speak really honestly in what I think is one of my favourite chapters of the book about how you had a very successful career, but at the age of 35, you felt the ticking of a biological clock that no career success could silence. As someone who ostensibly was able to go on and have it all what advice would you give to women in the same position trying to balance those competing priorities I don't think you can have it all um I mean maybe the odd very odd person has it all but um I think I was very lucky you know I I I had Sam um I've got many friends who haven't had children who not because they were too busy working or or anything just because they never you know really found the right person to have a child with and um I think one of the things that if you're working um certainly when I was in my 30s was there would be a lot of people who would be saying oh you know you're such a career girl uh, I don't suppose you've got the time to have a child or, you know, is your career more important to you? And I really minded that because that was never, you know, that was never the way that I felt. I just wasn't going to have a child unless I felt I was in the right circumstances with somebody to, to have a child with them. And it's interesting now with, you know, people freezing their eggs and people have, you know, that the idea of sort of conception of a child's really changed a lot since then and I don't know what decision I would have made you know had I now whether I would have thought about having a child on my own more or something if but um in terms of having a child and having a big job you know you just get on with it really I mean I only had one child Uh, I did have my stepdaughter Emma came to live with her father Paul and set and me um, when she was 12. So I had a kind of 
a 12-year-old for 10 years till she was about 22 as well. So there were a, sort of two children in the house because um, her brother was older, stayed, uh, didn't live with me full time. But but it's not like having, you know, not like Helena Morrissey with whatever, she's got nine children or something. <laughs> yeah, I imagine nine is quite a handful. You did then become a single parent, though, when you and Samuel's father were divorced in 2005. Was that difficult, being the sole carer for, I think Samuel must have been about 10, when you were still at the helm of Vogue? I think I was very lucky that I had a great job um, because obviously that financially enabled me to to look after my child. Um, And also I had something so sort of wonderful to spend my time doing. it's not easy being on your own with a child or you know more than one child i think i think i would have found it much much harder if i'd had two children i mean it was you know if you're if you've just got one child and you're in that position you become a kind of a quite um mobile unit you know people they can have you to stay and you can just take up one bedroom or you can go somewhere and you just need to rent one hotel room and you can get you know you traveling's easier all of that I was very aware of that um but I don't think you know it's not easy being on your own and doing a job and it's not easy being on your own and and not doing a job actually obviously this is a podcast about the value of being alone but I also really like to have discussions of loneliness because you know there are two sides to the coin when you were the editor of Vogue, cliche is that it's lonely at the top, but was it? Did you ever feel lonely during your time there? No, no, I was never lonely at um, a Vogue. I was, uh, you know, you, I have fantastic family and I have fantastic friends and I had many, uh, many wonderful colleagues who I was close to um, and but I never expected my colleagues to be my friends. Um, and that was very helpful in a way because uh, I think if you, it's, I think sometimes people kind of mistake work relationships for, for friendship. Um, and therefore when, when things get difficult at work, then uh, both parties can kind of feel a betrayal. So it's, it's quite good to keep to keep them separate um but no i never felt i never felt lonely i mean sometimes you'd have a difficult decision to make and you couldn't really talk to anybody about it and just had to make the decision and that was what i was paid for so i guess that it was a professional value of yours not to get the professional and personal confused yeah how about socialising outside of work hours? Were you wary of that? Yeah, I did. I mean, some of the, um, I'm just trying to think. I mean, over the years, there have been people on the team that obviously I was closer to than others. Um, some people I knew before I came to Vogue and I brought them into Vogue. Um, so I was seeing them outside of work hours before and I carried on seeing them. Um, but I think it's kind of like you don't feel... You know, like everyone's going to the pub on a Friday night and you don't kind of, I always felt that it's nicer for them if if I'm not going along. You know, it's kind of like this is them to let their hair down or whatever. It's kind of nicer for people if you're not. 
if you're not there. And do you still keep in touch with many of your former Vogue colleagues? Yeah, quite uh, quite a few. Um, less so the ones that are still there. Uh, but a lot of people left uh, when I left. And so, yeah, yeah, I do. I do keep in touch with them. I mean, I think, you know, one of the, from the point of view of alonement, one of the interesting things is, you know, I've lived all my life working in an office with other people around me. And this has really been the first time since I've been an adult when I haven't had loads of people around me all the time. And, you know, a lot of people who do jobs where they're running big things and their days are immersed with people find that very hard to adjust to. But I didn't. I didn't I, I I've never felt bereft at not having the company around me all the time, which I thought maybe I would. Yeah. Uh, although obviously I remember the layout you had your own office whereas a lot of it was open plan do you think that part of why you don't mind it so much now is because you were used to having your own space maybe but the people that I know that have minded it over the years you know when they changed jobs or you know or left it many of them had their own offices as well I think it's more it's more to do with how much you feel that the company or the interaction with other people um, is something that you that makes you feel more validated. Um, I mean, I don't like a day if there aren't many emails. I like emails. I like text messages. I like telephone calls, um, but that thing of constantly being surrounded by people, I don't miss that at all. So you're kind of happy with having the virtual buzz of people around? Yeah, yeah. I guess that's quite a lockdown-proof mentality. <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. I mean, I keep thinking how lucky, if coronavirus was going to happen, how lucky it is that it happened now, not 10 years before, when we wouldn't have had all these digital tools, you know, Zoom and Skype and FaceTime and Squadcast that you're using. Yeah, this podcast would not be happening 10 years ago. I mean, I guess there weren't any podcasts 10 years ago, but still. No. So as we've spoken about, we're in the midst of coronavirus lockdown at the moment. How are you finding isolating now with your partner, David? Um... It's absolutely fine. We're lucky. We've got a garden, got a park outside the front of the house. I go for a run. So I get out. Uh, He goes out for a walk. Um, We've both got our own offices here. Uh, So it's been completely fine, I have to say. Um, I mean, it's only been what three weeks or something now. Uh, I'm not sure another three weeks <laughs> what it will feel like. <laughs> but I think, you know, I've been so far very lucky. Nobody I know has been really, really sick. Um, I know a lot of people who have been ill, but nobody that's been dangerously or one person who is dangerously ill. But I only knew that once they'd recovered. Um, and in a way, I've always got so many things that I want to do that this has given you some space to be able to 
funny enough, everyone's saying it's harder to read than you'd think it was, that everyone's like, you think, I've got all these books I want to read, and then you sit down to read, and then you kind of don't. But things like tidying things out and um, doing a jigsaw puzzle, I'm a bit obsessed with that at the moment, and cooking, lots of cooking going on, um, making lists, endless lists, things to do, the now, what, not now, when kind of things, like, you know, your photograph albums. I mean, I think before we could hypothetically say, if I had all the time in the world, I'd do X, and now we actually do. Yeah. And have you learnt anything surprising about yourself during this time? That's a good question. I think I've learnt that when it's something like as big as this, that I find it slightly less anxiety-inducing as kind of smaller, more personal things. I mean, a lot of people I know are sort of waking up in the night worried or... And obviously, you know, I, like everybody, am worried on on a certain level. And, you know, one is worried about what's going to happen to the economy. One is worried about what's going to happen with work. One is worried about the health of other people. But I I think I've been surprised at how that hasn't been as bad as I thought it might have been. And, you know, isolation, it's odd when you say you've been isolating, because I don't really feel like it's that isolating somehow, because I don't know why, it just doesn't seem, you know what, because the book was coming out, and I had this incredibly busy schedule of um, activity, festivals, talks, all of that, and it's all in my, uh, on my laptop, in my calendar there, and it's kind of strange because it's like this kind of ghost world. I've kept it there, even though none of it's happening. And um, it's kind of strange feeling that there's all that activity that should have been happening that isn't going to happen now. But then in a way, have, if you've got a book coming out and it it becomes uh, quite time-consuming doing all the things around it that n- now you have to do that other people might have done before. So I don't feel so, in a way, so I'm spending so much time thinking about the book that it doesn't feel quite like I'm isolating. I can't explain. I'm curious. Do you think you could cope with isolating alone right now? What, like you, 35 days? I don't think so. I would not have been happy, no. <sighs> I would find that very difficult. But you have had times in your life where you have lived alone. Yeah, I lived on my own. I, I, I reckon from about the age of 27 to about 35, I lived on my own. Um, so quite a long time. But you wouldn't want to do it now? Well, isolated is different because you're not seeing other people. When I lived on my own, I had people to dinner. I went out to dinner, you, you know, go to parties. That's a totally different thing to being self-isolated. Do you think that time between the age of 27 to 35 that you lived alone, do you think that helped you to work on that independence? I don't really know the answer to that, actually. I think that, that sort of not how life works. You just kind of, you know, when you're on your own, you're on your own. And then if somebody else is living with you, well, then they're there. And then if you've got a child, then they're there. And you're not... I never was very aware of the of those things changing but I think now having spent all these years living with other people uh should I find myself living on my own that would be quite a big readjustment 
I think it's one of the great talents in life to is to be happy on your own. I think if people who are content on their own, who also can relate to other people, I mean, you know, they are, yeah, that is a great talent because, you know, at the end of the day, we are on our own, really, and it's very important to be able to be on your own. Um, and I think it's also something that maybe we don't value enough that ability to be on your own. It's a kind of skill that's worth trying to perfect, I think. Alexandra, thank you so much for speaking to me. That's okay. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Alonement Podcast. And thank you so much to my guest, Alexandra Shulman. If you liked this episode, please do rate, review or subscribe. It makes a big difference to helping other people find us. Until next time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.